Uh, my name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here. That's why I love videos like that. Uh, I want to welcome those of you guys that are joining us in Stafford, those of you guys that are online, and I mean, just dive in. That video captures the essence of the human experience. The ever quest for wisdom and knowledge and the inability to know what to do with it once we find it. We are forever pressing forward, trying to find ways to make ourselves smarter, trying to find ways to make ourselves wiser, because ultimately, we want to make our lives better. Let's not delude ourselves about why we're looking for wisdom. We're looking for wisdom because we want to make more money or spend our money more wisely because we want to raise children better or find better jobs or find the right schools. We chase wisdom because we believe that it will make our experience here better. And we are right, but not in the way that we think we are. We're gonna come primarily out of Proverbs chapter three, but we are gonna go all around. We're gonna go all the way from the beginning to the end. But if you are someone that follows along, that would probably be the best text to find, Proverbs chapter three. But before we dig into scripture, we're gonna pray and ask God to show up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that you are wisdom and that you give wisdom freely. And as your children, please implant it in us. Give us hearts that are attuned to you, minds that perceive what you have for us, and let us be a light to the people that you have put in our sphere. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So, with no further ado, right at the top, we'll go Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, where the author says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commandments in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. I'm already in. If this is a sales pitch, I want all of that. Peace, prosperity, lots of years to enjoy it. I'm already liking this wisdom thing. Let's go deeper. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. It gets even better. If I live with wisdom, I get a good reputation. Guys, let's be honest. What's worth more than a good reputation? Very little, if we're honest. You want to know how I know? Because you will fight to the death to protect your reputation. I've seen how you battle it out on Facebook. You will lay down your dignity to try and preserve your dignity. We've seen it. And what's better than a great reputation in the sight of man? It says right there, a great reputation in the sight of God. This wisdom thing just keeps getting better. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Chances are you've heard that before. That's one of those coffee cup bumper sticker ones. We always read it and we go, yes, because we always put, we'll make your life easier where we read, we'll make your path straight, because following a straight path is easier than following a winding path. So we think, oh man, yes, get the wisdom, I'm getting the good reputation, I'm getting the good name, and now my life gets easier, let's just keep on going. I need to get me some of this wisdom. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Health, nourishment, all of these are great things. Peace, prosperity, favor, health, and would all truly benefit us as we go about 
building the lives that we have planned for ourselves. These would be really good things. But what I want us to do, my goal in being up here this morning is to try to convince you that we have seriously sold short what it means to be wise. In our effort to understand wisdom, we have packaged it down into something that we can understand, and as a result, we have gotten very short-sighted in how we apply wisdom. We've got the definition right, but we are completely and absolutely wrong in what is the best application of the wisdom that we are able to gather in the short time that we have on this earth. And to prove it to you, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, Scripture tells us that God separated the waters. He brings forth the land, then he puts stuff on it that's alive. In kind of the icing on the cake, he puts us there. He says, creation is good. I'm going to put humanity right in the center of it. And after he puts humanity in the center of his perfect creation, this is what he says. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He creates creation. He creates humanity. And then he gives a giant job, a huge job. He says, look, what we've got going on here in Eden is perfect. And what's the most responsible thing to do with perfection? Share it, because it's good. So you guys that I have made, your job in this creation is to take this thing we call Eden, where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm live in harmony, where everything is perfect and peaceful, and you guys take this perfection and you spread it. And that's God's master plan, is that we, his children, would take what was experienced in Eden and make it reality for the rest of the earth. Well, the original humans thought that they had a better understanding of the plan. Instead of listening to God, they trusted their own understanding, and as a result, we experience what we experience now. And it only gets worse from there. In Genesis 4, we see murdering. I'm not even going to get into the nonsense that goes on in Genesis chapter 6. You guys can look that stuff up for yourself. It's debauchery of all kinds, but it gets to the point where God says, we got to hit the reset button. I'm going to flood the earth, and I'm going to save Noah. He's going to build an ark. He's going to be saved. And the way we teach this has always really confused me. The way we teach this is always with like felt boards and animals going up on the ark, and it's really beautiful. But like the whole world died. Right? Isn't that, we we're like, yay, God, he saved Noah. Well, he saved him from what? A flood that literally destroyed every other creature on the earth. This is how hard the reset button was. But we can't really blame God for it as much as we want to because he told them what was going to happen. He says, I'm giving you this great big job. Trust me. Don't trust yourselves. Trust me because I'm a whole lot smarter than you. All right, it's gotten bad. My guy Noah's going to build an ark. If you don't get on, you're in big trouble. No, we're going to lean on our own understanding some more, and we think you are not telling the truth. Sometimes when we don't listen to God, there are really bad consequences. And we love to blame him for those really bad consequences. 
So the flood recedes, Noah and his people come out, and we find ourselves in Genesis chapter nine, where God says this. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The great mission that we were given in the beginning of our creation remains unchanged. Everything else has changed. The way the world works has changed. The geography of the earth has changed. This is a tragedy of epic proportions. The one thing left unchanged in this is what God has asked us to do. In verse one, he says, fill the earth, take Eden out, let's expand perfection. He gives Noah kind of a list of how the world has changed, and then in verse seven, he says it again, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is your great purpose, this is your great mission, to take the perfection that is the kingdom of heaven and spread it throughout the rest of the earth. And I could keep you here for hours walking through the rest of scripture. We could go to chapter 11, where again in the Tower of Babel, geography changes, the world changes, but the purpose remains unsame. I could keep you here till you have to wait in line for 45 minutes of Panera this afternoon. But I don't hate you, I love you. So I would never do that to you. So I'm gonna skip ahead, because pop psychology and contemporary speaking says that you only need three pieces of evidence to convince somebody of something. So we're gonna fast forward all the way to the time of Jesus. We're gonna skip a whole portion of our family history. Jesus at this point has been killed, he's been raised back from the dead, and he meets his disciples, and this is what he says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you to. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says the same thing essentially. He says, all right, now I have come. God has come to earth. Scripture has been fulfilled. I've been murdered, I've been buried, and I'm back. And still, your great purpose has not changed. All the way from Genesis chapter one, your job is to take the kingdom of heaven and intersect it here in the earthly realm so that people can know the greatness that is God's original plan. This purpose transcends tragedies, transcends the changing geography of earth, transcends the living God coming and walking in first century Palestine, and it remains unchanged today. If you say that Jesus is who he says he is, if you agree that he is the son of God come to save mankind, then this is your purpose. About that, there can be no debate. If you do not believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that's the question that burns for you. Because the answer to that question literally changes everything. It becomes the lens through which you see creation. If you believe, however, that we have done wrong, as a result of the wrong we've done, we've separated ourselves from a loving God, God, not willing that this should be the ultimate arrangement, sent his son who died our death on a cross and rose again, then this question is already settled for you. There can be no debate about what your purpose is. Your purpose is to fill the earth with the greatness of God and the harmony of Eden. The question is whether you're doing it or not. 
That's the only question. Because you can't ignore your great purpose, and it is very easy to ignore your great purpose. Because we got grocery lists we got to get knocked out. And we got practices that we got to get to. And I got to go to work on time, because if I'm late one more time, they might throw me out of here. I've got all of these things that I have to do, and it, all of those things are urgent and pressing, and if I don't do them, somebody gets really mad at me. And so they take precedence in my life. And it's not that I would ever deny that that's my great purpose, but if I keep it on the back burner in my mind, I can pretend I am fulfilling my great purpose while actually I'm just building a life of my own design. And this will never be what God has desired for us. But on occasion, some of us take up the truth and we look at what God has said and we say, all right, this is my purpose. And we wrestle with the question, how best do I fulfill my purpose? Because about that, there can be a lot of debate. How best do we take the kingdom of God into the earthly realm? That has, there's books written about that. There's, you can find hundreds of millions of hours of content on what it looks like to live out that purpose. And so we think about it, and we reason with ourselves, and we come to what seems like a really good plan. We say, I know what is going to take the kingdom of heaven into the earthly realm. I am going to obey what God has told me. That's a great plan. It's all up in there, but by obedience, we tend to mean something different. We tend to mean, I am going to behave better than the person next to me. I'm going to say fewer swear words, I'm going to parallel park better than that person. <laughs> I'm going to fill in the blank. I'm going to vote better than them. I'm going to back the right candidates. I'm going to wear the right t-shirts, the ones that are cut to here and not to here. My swimsuit will be more modest than that person. And this is how we're going to take the kingdom of God to a world that is dying. We're going to behave so much better than them that they go, wow, you are so moral. I would love to be as moral as you. And we're going to take our morality as a club and we're going to whack an unsuspecting world in the head with it and they're going to repent and know that Jesus is who he says he is. This is the predominant plan. This is our strategy A. And we thought it up. You know how I know we thought it up? Because here's what Jesus has to say about it. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of law and the Pharisees in Moses' seat, you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for people to see. He says, don't act like those guys, they're arrogant. They don't actually love me. They love you looking at them thinking, wow, they must really love God. Everything they do is so that you will look at them and go, man, 
I want to be like him because he is a lot like God. And he goes on and says, nothing could be farther from the truth. Read Matthew 23. It's just Jesus literally pouring gas on this ideology and flicking a match. He says, you're whitewashed tombs full of death. He says, you're a brood of vipers. He says that anybody that thinks that the way you live is the way they ought to live, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Not a ringing endorsement for the moral superiority philosophy. We can summarize it in Luke when he goes kind of on another laundry list about what it means to live this way and why it's so wrong. And he says, these men will be punished most severely. No plan that Jesus says deserves severe punishment is the right plan. Our moral superiority will not be the weapon by which we accomplish our great purpose. And once we come to realize this, we go back to the drawing board. But in our own finite wisdom, we generally arrive at another very poor rationalization. We say, okay, so if moral superiority isn't the way, If I'm not going to will people into heaven by showing them how much better I am than they are, then all of it's for nothing. I can just send my face off and teach them that the grace of God is infinite. So we swing from moral superiority to moral negligence. And we say, well, if this isn't the right way, then the other extreme must be the right way. And this is not a new thought. We see this all the time. God's got me. It doesn't matter how I live because God will forgive whatever I do. And this was around since the first century as well. Paul takes this on in Romans chapter six when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Should I just go nuts because God forgives everything anyway? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He says, no, that's what we've been saved from. He says, sin equals death. He says, look around you. Everything negative that you experience, all the pain that is in your life, everything you've had to endure is a result of sin corrupting God's creation. The kingdom of heaven is the absence of sin. We don't bring people by sinning our faces off that they can know the grace of God. Jesus' brother Jude in his letter says this is an ungodly philosophy and those who follow it are lined up for condemnation. Again, not a very ringing endorsement. But these are the two primary modes that we believe misguidedly help us fulfill the great burden, the great weight of what God has given us. And I don't mean burden in a negative sense. I mean it as an important sense. Because what could be more important than taking the greatness of God, than taking the love of God, than taking the kingdom of heaven to somebody who is outside it? What could be more important than that? Nothing. So we better make sure we got this right. Because the way most of us think about it and go about it is not right. It's in a way that scripture very clearly condemns. So we have a a problem. We have a family problem 
For those of us that believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the vast majority of us ignore our great purpose. And those of us that have embraced the great purpose have no idea how to carry it out. And this is the problem facing our family. But the remedy for our short-sightedness is embarrassingly simple. You see, our problem is not that we don't dream. Our problem is that our dreams are too small. Our problem is that we're dreaming of a life that we have designed. A dream school, a dream job for security as we raise our family. Our problem is that we have planned out our entire existence and after we've planned it out, we ask God to bless it. Our plan is that we've gotten in the car, driven exactly the wrong direction, and then when we come to the destination, we're mad at God for not being where we thought he should be. Jesus did not come to help you and I build a better life. Jesus is the life. He did not come so that we could have everything that we dream of. He came to shatter our illusions. He came to show us what dreaming actually means. We forget that we do not exist to accomplish daily checklists. You and I exist for the express purpose of bringing the heavenly kingdom into the earthly one. And no plan that we form will be able to do that. Our Father has repeatedly warned us against filtering His truth through our experience. Repeatedly, He has said things like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The prophet Isaiah reminded us that His ways are not our ways, neither are His thoughts our thoughts. The Apostle Paul says, live by faith, not by sight. Our job is not to make sense of our experience. Our job is to accept what our Father has told us this experience maintains. His brother James says it perfectly in his letter. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. He says, hey, you guys that have your lives planned out, you're foolish, you are not wise. You got your wisdom and you said, I am gonna raise my kids better using the wisdom, a good thing. But you got trapped in a good thing without looking for the great thing. You got your wisdom and you say, hey, we're gonna make more money this way, which is a good thing. And you settled for the good thing instead of going for the great thing. He says, you took all the wisdom that is here and you started building your perfect life and you are wrong for it. He says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. He says, all your plans can be wiped away in a second. You spent years on that plan. You spent so much energy and time on that plan and you don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James tells us to quit arrogantly 
planning our lives and to ask the creator of the universe, the author of our divine purpose, what he has for our lives. Wisdom begins when we are humble enough to say, God, I will follow you, but bold enough to say, here I am, Lord, send me. This is true wisdom. Not that we take our knowledge and build up a better life here where everything will become someone else's. Everything that you have amassed, your degree will one day line a waste paper basket. Your house will one day be someone else's. This life has its importance in the fact that what happens in this life echoes in eternity. And that is the big picture of wisdom. Not that I attempt to carve out my security by my own understanding in the best way that I know how, but that I come to the end of myself and I say, I know nothing, but I'm a son of the one who knows everything. Father, help me to embrace my great big purpose, that I can make this life count, that I can know what is important and I can be led by you. This is what God has for us. This is what he asks of us and he will provide for us. The fact is that every CEO, every valedictorian, every drug addicted homeless person ends up six feet in the ground and we all meet the same God. What we think separates us here really isn't all that important. Who we think we are really isn't all that accurate. What we spend our lives pursuing, most of it's worthless in the end. Only when we take the wisdom that is available to us and use it to best carry out the bringing of the kingdom of heaven to the realm of earth, are we actually being wise? So let's read Proverbs 3 with this in mind again. With our big purpose, let's go back to Proverbs 3 and reread that bumper sticker verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. It takes on a different meaning when we look at it in light of our eternal purpose. if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then your first step should always be to ask him what he has for you. Your first step should always be to go to him, not to plan your life and ask him to bless it because if that's what you do, you are your own functional God. But to say, God, I recognize in my wisdom that I know nothing but I recognize in you, you have a great purpose for me and I would love to be a part of that. So in actuality, our step as his children is to recognize he's the boss. Our step that we take is to humble ourselves in front of the creator of the universe and let him direct our steps that we can make an impact in eternity. 
we would love to connect with you about this purpose. Immediately after I close, there'll be men and women up here that would love to pray with you, help you decide who Jesus is if you're still undecided. And if you have decided, help you embrace your great purpose because it is a purpose we carry out together. But the call for all who believe is to take the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth and leverage all resources and wisdom in that endeavor. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us, even when we are fickle towards you. But most of all, Lord, we just ask that you give us wisdom and a burning that we would not be a people that is about this life, but be a people that is about the life that you have had. We would not be so arrogant to think that we can define ourselves, but rather, since you have created us, let us be a people that is defined by you. Let us be defined by your love. Let us be defined by your calling. Let us be defined by your wisdom. For any of us that are arrogant enough to plan our lives and then come to you afterwards, let us be wrecked by the realization that you are God and we are not. That your plan is always the best plan by virtue of the fact that you are the one that designed the plan. Lord, just let us be a people that is on mission by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the perfection that is you to the imperfection that we experience around us. We ask these things in the Father's name.